0: Hi. All right. So I am from the beautiful city of San Diego. I have five kids and I am going to be hanging out with you guys this week. Um, And if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of John chapter one. We're talking about truth. And here's why this topic is important. It's important because if there's no truth, then nothing in your life is relevant. Nothing in your life is important, nothing in your life has meaning, because truth means that which corresponds to reality, and if we're not discussing topics that correspond to reality, there's no point in having the conversation anyway. But the way that our culture has drowned itself in our current situation is we've said a lot of ridiculous things about truth, like uh, maybe there's no such thing as truth at all which is a really ironic thing to say because when someone says the phrase, there's no such thing as truth, what are they saying? They're making a truth statement. So what they're literally saying is there's nothing true except for the statement that I just said, which is that nothing is true. Other people say everything's true and your truth is true for you, which means if you're, what, how old are you? Yeah, 15? 13, okay, you're 13. Um, do you, you ever have days where you wake up where you feel older or you feel younger? No, you don't? Well, you, you will when you get older. Sometimes when I wake up, right, I got five kids, and so I, like, won't sleep one night. And then, um, like, when you remember when you were a kid, you would, like, get to, like, your soccer game. You'd open the car door. You woke up, like, 37 minutes ago, and you're like, <gasps> and then you start sprinting. Nothing hurts. You're fine. When you get older, now when I go out I have to like stretch for 45 minutes and then I'm normally too tired to perform the activity that I came for. I'm like I'm just going to go sit down and eat a crumpet. It's it's like that's my life now. And so some days I feel older and I feel younger. But if I walked in here and I said I feel 67 years old today, you would go, that's not true. You're not 67. I go, no, no. I feel 67. You see, but we actually have, we know that your age corresponds to something. Your age is actually a really weird thing to track. How many times have you been outside of your mother's womb on planet earth when it went around the sun one time? That's how old you are, right? I'm 13 years old. What you said is, since the time that I came out of my mother's womb, this earth has revolved around the sun 13 times. (laughs) Neat right? That's how, we, that's how we know how old somebody is. So it doesn't matter how old you think you are. We have a standard. We have a measure. There is a truth to it. And it doesn't matter how you feel. These truths that are, that are irreconcilable, that you can't go against them, they're called absolute truths. It's, it doesn't matter what your opinion is. It doesn't matter what your mom thinks. It doesn't matter what your family says. It doesn't matter how society votes. It doesn't matter what consensus says. There are absolute truths, That no matter what you say or what you do, if you think the the sun is hot, that's true. If you think it's cold, you're wrong, right? You're not off a little bit. You're wrong. The sun is unequivocally hot. But our culture hates telling you that. Our, Our culture hates walking up to anyone and saying, that's false. That's wrong. Because we're, we're kind of a strictly emotional based culture, right? You ever seen someone who's wrong, but they're wrong passionately. So we let them be wrong, right? Two plus two equals five. Mm, Johnny, no, it's four. It's five. We're like, okay, where's your mom? Calm down. It's five. It's five. It's fine. It can be five. We let people get away with this. And what has happened then is culturally, we don't even know what truth is. We have, we don't know the difference between what's true and what's false. And so when it comes to the Bible, the problem is when Jesus came to planet Earth, he said something extremely offensive. I would say the most offensive phrase that any human has ever said in the history of mankind. He looked at the cultures of this world. He looked at the the way that people think, the way that people talk, the religions that they worship, the gods that they worship, and he said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. He basically said, if you don't believe what I just said you're wrong. You're not off a little bit. You're not doing your best. You're wrong. That's crazy. And, and, and we have to, if we want to do our due diligence, find out something. Either, if, if that statement is true, then it, it deserves every breath in my lungs and every second that I'm alive for the rest of my life. It deserves everything. God, if he is the only way, the only truth, and the only life, Jesus deserves my everything. If that statement is false, Jesus deserves nothing. He's a liar. He's a psychopath. Some of you, this is, you walk in, you're like, finally, the guy speaks truth. Jesus is a psychopath. The problem is that for a lot of us that are sitting here, we have aligned, we've marginalized Jesus into this really weird compartment where he's neither everything, but you're also not willing to say that he's nothing. C.S. Lewis writes, he says, The problem with modern Christianity is that Jesus in the text makes such bold claims that he can either be your everything, or he can be your nothing. But if you have a brain in your skull and you read the text, he could never be your something. Either Jesus is true, he is the way, the truth, and the life, and you owe him every breath in your lungs, or he's nothing, and You're going to have a great week at camp. Kajabi can, can, Kajabi can, can't. Doing everything that you want to do, party it up, do what you want. And it's of zero relevance whatsoever. This book is either true in everything it says, or it's false. And it should be aligned to like mother goose, you know, like nursery rhymes. The problem is a lot of us, when we think about Jesus, we think, oh, he was a good teacher. He was a good instructor. The problem with that friend is the root of what Jesus said was a lie. Do you know someone in your life that you respect as a good teacher where the core of who they was was a lie? You can't do that. That's what I want to kind of talk about this week. I want to dive in and go, what do we do with Jesus Christ? on your watches, on your calendars, on whatever. Th- this is the year 2022. That means it's been 2022 years since what? Since Jesus Christ of Nazareth came to planet earth. We can't get him off our calendars. We can't stop talking about him on every holiday season. It's, it's on your secular iPhone, right? Like your iPhone declares, guys, don't forget, have an answer. 2022 years ago, something bananas happened. And here we sit, 2022 years later, in a chapel in California, of all places, talking about Jesus Christ. He was a five foot five Jewish carpenter guy. He didn't, he, he, the, the Bible says he wasn't good looking. He wasn't tall. He wasn't burly. He wasn't persuasive. There was no social media. He didn't have any news outlets following him around. And this dude was only in ministry for three years. And in three years, a Middle Eastern Jewish carpenter, five foot five, ugly dude walked around and we're still talking about him. You have to have an answer. That requires the thinking mind to give a response. Why are we talking about him? Did he do what he said he was going to do? Or have we all been hijinked? Have we all been hoodwinked? Have we all been hoaxed? We want to figure out the truth. Sometimes not knowing the truth in a situation is not that big of a deal. Okay. My son's name is Brady. I have three sons, Peyton, Brady, and Leonidas. Leonidas. We call him Leo. And then I've got two daughters, Harper and Finley. And uh, Brady and I, we were hanging um, like pictures, portraits um, at our house. So I had like a little drill, you know, like mm, power drill. And uh, so as I'm drilling in, I was drilling a pilot hole and I hit a wire. Okay. If you don't know it, it's not good. Okay. If you're handy, then you knew that wasn't good. If you're not handy like me, I'm here to tell you that's not a good thing. The lights all flickered, the TV turned off, and then all the lights in our house went off simultaneously. And my son, Brady, he's got glasses. You're going to love him because he's going to walk around camp and he's going to think you're his best friend because he doesn't know any strangers. And he's like, hi, what's your name? And you're going to say, hey, Brady. And he's going to go, how do you know my name? And then he's going to run away. That's what he does every time. right? He's always like, he has like a conspiracy theory in his brain where he's like, how do you know my name is Brady? And he just runs. And he just, he's over it. He doesn't care. He's over the concept. Um, so Brady's sitting there and I'm holding the drill. And as the lights all turn off, I look over at him and I go, this is a conundrum. And he's like a conundrum. I'm like, yeah. So the lights turn back on and I'm like, I'm back up on the ladder and I'm like, Brady, can you hand me the drill? And you know what Brady said? He said, don't you mean the conundrum? (laughs) I'm like, what do you I realized when I was sitting on the ladder and the lights went off, I was holding a drill in my hand and I said, what? This is a conundrum. So guess what Brady thought? Brady thought I was giving an instructional moment in the dark where I'm like, hey, I felt like this is the best time to tell you. This thing's called a conundrum (laughs) in the future, future reference conundrum, which I wasn't. He was off. It's not going to cost him anything. I laughed a little bit. wasn't a big deal. Sometimes having things wrong or not knowing the truth can cost you a lot. Um, I, was, I worked at a church for 11 years in San Diego, California, and um, I got an email in one day, and it was, this, it was from a woman named Judy, and Judy, uh, Judy's stepmom died, and so she wanted me to do the funeral. And I'd never met this woman before, and so I walk in to a, a, a meeting with Judy, and she's, like, mad, okay? She's got, like, a big cat on her sweatshirt and some, like, Diet Coke stains, and she thinks, like, the liberals are ruining the world. She, like, keeps going on about California and how we're the downfall, and Las Vegas is gonna be oceanfront property. This woman just kept going, and I'm like, thank you. It was like when your aunt keeps posting on Facebook, but you couldn't leave the room. You're like, please let me leave. I just don't want to hear everything you think about everything. But she was, like, kind of off and kind of bizarre. And... um. And I'm like, I'm gonna give her a good experience, you know. Uh, I want to, I want to make sure everything's good with her, and I'm gonna make it really personal because she was like, it's a big. We had 13,000 people at our church, right? So she thinks to herself, "Oh, you're probably gonna have like Mad Libs, like fill in the blank uh, funeral." And I'm like, "No, I'm gonna make this personal." So I start taking notes, and so I said, "Judy, why don't you tell me all about your mom?" And so she started. She was like, "Yeah." uh, Love loves bowling, um, loves Dale Earnhardt, was a really good bowler, all this. She goes on this whole tangent about everything that was important. So I have all my notes, and I show up to the National Cemetery, okay? So she she was going to get buried with honors, military honors. So I show up to the cemetery... And there's like 40, 50 people sitting here where we're graveside. The this, this service started at 12. At 12.30, like the color guard was going to come and do like the whole honors thing. And so I get up there. I open to Psalm 23. Uh, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And then I look up. Oh, guys, it was like super professional. I'm like, you know what, guys? Today is a celebration of the human experience. Some of you today, you're going to want to laugh. <laughs> That's okay. Some of you are going to want to cry today guess what? That's okay too. Because some of you are going to cry because you thought about the last time you went bowling and you got out-bowled. And did she go easy on you? Not at all. Or you might think about the last time you watched the NASCAR race and all you heard in the backdrop was her chanting for her favorite driver, Dale Earnhardt Jr. And maybe you're thinking, and no joke, this lady in the front row raised her hand. Which if you've ever been to a funeral, typically more of a monologue, you know, not so much like raise hand time. She raises her hand and, um, what's, what's your name? Kayla, Kayla, can you raise your hand real quick? Okay. So pretend that you're doing a funeral and you're eulogizing the person. You're talking about what she liked and didn't like, and someone raises their hand. And I'm like, you know what? I'm really going to show that I'm about, uh, the, the customization of this. So I called on her. And I, she was in the front row and I said, yeah. And she goes, um, you're talking about Brenda. And I went, thank you. Yes, I am talking about Brenda. And Brenda is a woman who, the more that she strived in her life, raise your hand again. And I was like, okay, what? She goes, that's Donna. I said one more time. She goes, "You you're talking about Brenda. The woman in the casket behind you is Donna." Now, I want you to ask yourself a really important question. What the crap just happened? So I started replaying everything in my mind. And in that moment, I realized, when I got the email, it said, "Would you please do a funeral for this woman's?" stepmom." But when I sat down in the meeting with her, I asked her to tell me all about her. So guess what she did. <laughs> she told me the full-life story of her living) estranged, family abandoning mother who wasn't even invited to the funeral. She was on such bad terms. I eulogized the enemy of the deceased at her own funeral. Brenda lives in the Florida Keys after ditching their family, cheating on their father, And no one's talked to her in years except for Judy, who loves her. (laughs) You see, sometimes the truth doesn't make a big difference. Like when a conundrum is not a drill. Sometimes the truth can change everything. Like the word step. And you find yourself going, well, now I got a question for you. You be me. What do you do next? Because... What, 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 what do you know about Brenda? Or what do you know about Donna? Nothing. You don't know anything. So I literally did this. I was like, um, would anyone else like to share something about Donna? (laughs) This dude gets up and he, he looks at me like this. He's probably like 75 years old. He goes, Donna. And I'm like, I get it. Old man river. Like, give me a break. Like. You, it, you sent Judy. She's crazy. Like, she thinks, whatever, I don't care. Big cat, your fault. Anyway, the funeral finishes in 12 minutes. I couldn't have honored this woman anymore if I tried, right? The problem is, when's the color guard coming? Nope. No color guard, because everyone had already left when they arrived. I send everyone home so early that when the color guard shows up, there was no one even left to do anything with. Guys, sometimes the truth matters. Something as simple as that can deceive one. Here we go. John chapter one, we dive in. What is the truth about this Jesus? What is the truth about God? John chapter one. If you're new to the Bible God put a table of contents at the beginning of your Bible. It'll tell you where the books are. A little table of contents. It'll say which page it starts on. You're looking for a book called John. So there are four guys Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And they are firsthand, or they are friends of firsthand eyewitnesses to the life of Jesus. So just think of it as four biographies. We call them Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but if they were in modern day biography, we'd call them Jesus, 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 and Jesus. Because it's the story of Jesus seen through the eyes of four different guys. One of them is. Of Jewish history. He's really concerned about showing that Jesus was the one we've been talking about for thousands of years. Mark, he's all about immediately action gospel. Luke is a a physician, and it says at the beginning of Luke, he writes to a man named Theophilus. He wants to give an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And John is kind of more the ethereal gospel that gets into what Jesus was thinking, what he was doing behind the scenes. And we're going to be studying the book of John today, it's uh, this whole week. John's discovery of who Jesus was. And, and, and the book of John wants you to think of, of Jesus like a court case, okay? It, the book of John is written, John chapter 20 says, that you may believe that Jesus is who he said he was. These, that's why we have the book of John. So John presents Jesus like a court case. He brings in witnesses. He sets up evidence. He puts Jesus on trial. He shows demonstrations. He, call, he talks about signs and wonders and verification and fulfillment. John is obsessed with you understanding something, that this Jesus is who he said he was. He knew that there was going to come a time where people after generations and generations would say, maybe Jesus didn't do what he said, or or maybe Jesus Jesus isn't who he said. So this whole book is written so that you sitting here 2000 years later could read a firsthand biographical account of what Jesus did and who he was. That's what we're cracking into, okay? It's not a series of fables. It's not a series of uh, fairy tales. This is actual historical evidence. There's been 23,000 archeological digs that have been done in the ancient Near East to try to validate this text. Not a single one has controverted a single word of scripture. What you're reading is true. It's relevant. it's, it's, It's historical. And your question that you'll have to answer this week is what do you do with it? I'm gonna make you two commitments as we jump in. My commitments to you are this. Number one, I'm going to ground everything that I say in the scriptures. I don't want this to be the gospel according to Chris, but the gospel according to Christ. I want you to read what he, what he says and what, what he understands and what he wants you to know. My second commitment to you is this. I'm not going to sugarcoat anything, Okay you guys are like, you can, a lot of you guys can enter into the military and you can, you drive cars and you're in charge of other people's kids. A lot of you, you nanny, you babysit, you do these things. You're adults and the gospel and the the Bible is not written for like 40 year olds and up. It's written at a level that we can all understand. And the issue is the Bible's asking you to give a response. This isn't your parents' faith. This isn't, we understand the scriptures, this is what we understand about them. One day you will all die. Some of you long before you thought, some of you long after you could possibly imagine. But you will one day meet the God of the universe face-to-face, and you will have to give an account for what you did with this book, which means that my responsibility as a pastor, and as a speaker, and as a teacher, is I, I would not be able to look God face-to-face and have him go, bro. Bro. The, the text was clear. And I'm like, well, I didn't want to offend them. Think about a doctor. Think about going in for a doctor's visit and your best friend has cancer, bad cancer, but cancer that can be taken care of if you do something about it. But the doctor, instead of giving you the hard diagnosis, simply says, put a bandaid on top of it and just ignore it. In the moment you would go, oh, this is great. Let's go get Taco Bell. Nothing, nothing's wrong. The problem is, In a couple of months, when that cancer took over everything and it killed that person, you would go back to the doctor and say, how could you have known the truth and not said something to me? How could you have known the diagnostics? How could you have known the prognosis? How could you have known the proper treatment and ignored it? How could you have done that? That's why I really believe that my responsibility isn't to sugarcoat anything for you. You're adults you're going to be offended. There's going to be things that go against your senses. The Bible, if it was rated something, it would not be rated G or PG or PG 13. It would be straight to R, right? It would be like, it's, a, it's offensive. It's grotesque. There's a lot of things in there that, that, especially for our modern culture, absolutely go against what we think. I don't think it's my job to censor that. I think it's my job to give you the full weight of the facts, the full weight of the truth, and let you respond as adults with a decision. Some of you, your decision this week is going to be, I want nothing to do with God. At least have an informed reason why you think that. Some of you are going to think, I need to change everything about my life to follow Jesus. I want you to be informed to think that. Not emotional manipulation, not hoodwinked, and not sugar-coated. The truth, just the truth, facts, and you can respond my commitment that I hope you make back to me is one, lean into these conversations. And two, if you've got pushback, make sure it's from the text and not from your feelings. Okay. Because if you come up to me and I go, here's what the Bible says. And you go, well, I don't think God would. I'm going to go, listen, friend, love you. No one cares what you think. God has shown us his character in the text and us thinking or feeling like God is different, isn't going to change who he is. I'm going to tell you the truth from the scriptures, and I'm not going to sugarcoat it. And I hope that you will lean in, and then you're going to have rebuttals with your your small group leaders, with your counselors, with your pastors, because it's going to offend a lot of us. But grounded in the text, not in your personal feelings. This is what the whole idea of truth is about. John chapter 1. Here's what it says. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning. Okay, so I want you to picture this not in our modern context, but I want you to picture us uh, like in an underground church in the first century, okay. Nero and Diocletian have have uh, have sent out their dictates that all Christians caught with the Bible are going to be killed. Okay, you're going to be thrown into Nero's circus. You're going to be beheaded. You're gonna. If we find you, we're going to tie all of your limbs to different horses and send them in four different directions. We're going to hang you. We're going to draw and quarter you. You're going to be killed. And now we find out that a guy named John who followed Jesus around has written a firsthand account. So we've gathered underground. We're looking at everyone walking through the door. We're trying to make sense of who they are. Either any one of them could be a Roman and they could be turning us in and we could be in near a circus by the end of the night. And under the cloak of darkness, we open up the text. And we say, in the beginning. Okay, so for most of us, if you're familiar with scripture or you've ever read the Bible before, it's kind of in pop culture too. When you hear the phrase, in the beginning, what do you think of? In the beginning. What? Good. God created the heavens and the earth. That's the very first verse in the whole Bible. It goes like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God was over the surface of the waters, and God said, let there be light. okay. The book of John starts the same way. It says, in the beginning. It wants us to be thinking about creation, to be thinking creation themes. In the beginning, here's where it changes. John says, was the word and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So again, John takes us in, and he uses this kind of cool analogy. He says, in the beginning was the word. That word, word, it's probably capitalized in your Bible. It's actually taking the place of a Greek word, logos. That word logos means the knowledge or the truth. In the beginning, there was this truth. And the truth was with God, and the truth was was God. A lot of us, when we think about Jesus, we might think that Jesus was born on December 25th of the year zero, right? First of all, he probably wasn't born in December. That's a total fable. But secondly, when Jesus was born, that's just when the word became flesh okay? That's when the truth put on skin and became human. See, Jesus has always existed. He's an eternal being. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed. This is what John's trying to get at. He's saying when Jesus Christ was born, this wasn't the first time that we knew him or understood him or saw him. It's just the first time he put on flesh, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Jesus, through the Word, through the truth, all things were made. Without Him, nothing has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. But that light shined in the darkness, but the darkness didn't understand it. John is saying, God put on flesh, Jesus Christ came to planet Earth, and He came into our darkness. And we were so offended by his light that was showing us our sin, showing us our mistakes, showing us our falsehoods, showing us our lack of truth, that we as a people said, forget this guy, let's kill him. The light shined in the darkness, but the darkness snuffed out the light. I love how he appeals to the creation narrative there. If you'll go with me on this one, we're going to do a little bit of a role play. I think it's going to probably get to the heart of why our world is in the state that it is right now. Okay. In the book of Genesis chapter three, it says that, uh, the, the the, the chapter three starts with this phrase. Now the serpent was more crafty and clever than any of the animals that God had made. Okay. So we understand the serpent to be Satan. Okay. The enemy of God. We, we understand that Satan was previously, he was one of God's angels, probably even a worship leader in heaven with God. But then instead of worshiping God, he wanted the worship of God. Satan said, I'm, I'm amazing. He probably had the best voice of anyone who's ever lived. And he was so sick of giving worship to God. He wanted to start stealing worship from God. And in doing so, he fell from heaven and became, uh, he became the enemy of God. Now he's not God's equal enemy, He is created, he is weaker, he's not omniscient, he's not omnipotent, he's not omnipresent, he's certainly not omnibenevolent. He's not all-knowing, all-loving, all-powerful, all-present. He's none of those things. But he is crafty. And it says in the Bible that Satan currently in our world has free reign to kind of do whatever he wants to do here underneath the guidance or, or underneath the absolute dominion of God. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to role play with me. If you were Satan, this is the role play, kind of fun, okay? You get to be Satan. Um, in this role play, I want you to think, uh, how, when we think about Satan, right? A lot of us, like, w- when you think about Satan, what, what word picture comes to mind? Help me out. What do you, what do you see in your head? You say the Dodgers? No, I said the Dodgers. <laughs> oh, say it at the end. Okay, good. Yeah. Yeah, no, I get you, I get you. I thought you said Dodgers. I was like, okay, shots fired. Okay, calm down. <laughs> we can all be friends. Uh, what, what word pictures do you get? Help me. Yeah, 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 like devilly uh, red. Um, Chaos. Say it again. Chaos. Chaos. <laughs> Have you been waiting all year to say that? Here's my moment, guys. <laughs> Chaos. Yeah, right? We got this like cartoon version of Satan. He's got like a little tail with like a point on the end of it. And he, he, like, he's got like a trident, right? He like stole it from Poseidon or something. He's like, look at me, you know? And he's got like a latex suit on. Like, <laughs> wait, if you're Satan, you're like, latex in hell sounds great, fantastic. But that's not, that's, that's not at all. And again, Satan loves that you think about that. Satan loves that when you think about Satan, you get a cartoon picture in your head. Do you want to know why? because it, it plays into this idea that it's all a fable, it's all fake, it's, all, it's, a, it's cartoon, it's caricaturized, it's not real. Satan loves that when you think about Satan, you think of some goofy-looking Bugs Bunny-type creature that like walks around Looney Tunes land, and he's like, I'm, right? And then when we think about Satan tempting us, or the craftiness of Satan, like when Satan tempts me, he never walks in my house, and he's like, mm, cocaine? You know, like, <laughs> because my answer is like, no. Thank you, but no, right? I was like, he says he's crafty. Certainly there's people in the world where that would be their downfall, but for someone like me, he knows me. He watches me. He understands me. So he doesn't walk in and he's like, PCP. Cause I would be like, no, you know, he would never be like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to get Chris because he really loves the beach. And we're going to tempt him and say, I don't like the beach. I don't like sand. I don't like water. And I've got five kids, which means every time we go to, we go to the beach, we bring like a beach home with us. I don't like it. So he's crafty. He gets it. I don't want, don't, don't think of that from me. Don't think of, we, don't think of any of those cartoonish things. Think about an angel of God with all of its beauty and power that has, is hell bent, no pun intended, on convincing you that God isn't there. What would you do in a modern society like ours, in a materialistic, postmodern, modern uh, naturalistic explanation for everything society? If you were Satan and you were crafty, would you show up all the time and do really weird stuff? No. You would sit behind and you'd be like, yep, all there is is what you can see, friends. The world is all that there is. There's nothing hyper-spiritual. There's nothing more than you can see, taste, touch, and feel. naturalistic, methodological naturalism is all there is. Just worry about that. Read your textbooks. Here's what it is. And there are certain times in scripture where God, there's a big word you can learn, called anthropomorphizes to mankind. Anthropomorphizes means, imagine if God tried to explain to you the beauty of heaven in his own language. How would it work? You probably wouldn't understand it. There's words for what God sees, knows, and understands that if he tried to illustrate it to you, if he tried to tell it to you, you would go, bro, what are you talking about, right? Like there's colors, It said there's colors that we've never seen before. And imagine if God tried to explain to you the color of heaven and you weren't able to do so. Imagine if God tried to explain to you the glory of being in the presence of a billion angels. You couldn't do, he wouldn't be able, so God does this really cool thing in scripture. He anthropomorphizes, it means he speaks our language. I made the mistake one time of asking my wife what childbirth feels like. And she started by going, it feels like your uterus. And I'm like, um, homie ain't got no uterus. <laughs> like, so what's her, her responsibility? The way that we relate to people is we have to start by something that they get and then explain how it's different. So she can't start with, think about your uterus, because I'm like, I cannot do that. You know, it's a start, something we can both relate to. God does this with us. He doesn't start by going, uh, imagine the scrum true lessons of the angelic realm. No. God's going, I love you so much. It's as if, uh, you wouldn't get that. So he uses analogies and he says, I love you like a, um, I love you like a son and a father. I love you like a father loves his son, like a good father would do anything for his son, like a good father knows and loves his sons and his daughters. I love you like that. Imagine a good relationship between a father and a daughter. Imagine what that man would do for that woman. Imagine what that man would do for his son. Imagine there would be no length that he would not go to in order to save that person, even from themselves. This is what God is like. And God looks at us and he says I want you to understand how much I love you it's it's I want you to think of like a um like a marriage think about a a a bridegroom and a bride on their wedding day and how the bridegroom can sell everything he has because everything that's important right now is his bride and then, and then he talks about the church being the bride of Christ he uses these analogies in scripture and if you were the crafty serpent and God used an analogy to help us make sense of who he was what would you attack You'd attack the analogy. So when God says, I'm a good father, friend, and I know a lot of you, this is a very personal thing for you. How many of us have been hurt with the reality of fatherlessness, fatherly neglect? You don't need to raise your hands. Thank you for your honesty. Fatherly neglect, rejection, in certain times, abuse. It's rampant in our world. Why? Why do you think that's so much the case? Because God relates to us as father and the crafty serpent says, I'm going to confuse what that means to Everyone what's the state of marriages? One in two and in divorce at this point, right? Now it's different for people who are walking with Jesus, who are actively involved in church. That number goes down to about 15%. But for the general society, those who just believe in God, it's right around 50%, a little bit over it. In fact, the divorce rate fell last year. Do you want to know why? People aren't getting married anymore. So when God uses Ephesians chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 64, Isaiah chapter 51 to relate to his people as a husband who loves his wife, if you were a crafty serpent, what would you attack? Marriages. So that when we hear these analogies, when we we sing songs like, you're a good, good father, so many of us hear that song and what do we think? What? Good, good father? Why? Because the serpent is crafty. A lot of us, we've lost hope in the institution of marriage. And so when God in scripture says, I love you like a, a bridegroom prepares a bride for their wedding day, we go, what does that mean to me? I think it's no wonder in conclusion that when Jesus stands in the ancient Near East 2000 years ago, when he declares, I am the way, the truth and the life, truth is under attack. All Satan has to do is make it confusing. It's like investing. You ever met someone who like invests money and you think to yourself, I'll never know that because when they talk, they're like, oh yeah, well then the the Dow Jones is here and the stock market's falling this way and the way that you, and here's the way that you can relate to, oh, and make sure there's, we're in a bear market, we're in a bull market. What what do people, the common person, the reason that stockbrokers have a job is because the common man goes, ah, (laughs) what are you talking about? You ever, ever saw people who are in the military? I was in Vacaville a few weeks ago, teaching at a church, and these guys were in the hot tub, and they were all military. And then it was me. And I'm like, hi, I'm Chris. And they were like, yeah, my MP the other day, we were going on our 341s. And then this guy came in, and he was like, a, he was like one of the POs, and he came in, and I'm like, yeah, first PO. Me too. <laughs> post office? Is that post office? <laughs> Did the post office enter? This is phenomenal. This is unbelievable. MP? military personnel, police, fantastic. Sounds good. It makes the common man go, I'm out. I tap. I don't know. I'm not in that world. I'm not one of those people. So I'm just going to walk away. This is what Satan wants you to think about God. He wants every analogy that he gives to be so confusing. The Bible to for so many of us to go, it's big, it's complicated. It's complex. I just can't do it. That, that's all Satan has to do is to confuse us enough that we go, there is no truth. Jesus says, I am the truth. Satan says, but what if there isn't such a thing as truth? What if truth is unknowable? What if truth is too confusing for someone like you? What if you're not ready to hear the truth? What if you can't handle the truth? As we wrap up this morning, I want to present to you these two questions that we saw in the video for you to walk away with today. A.W. Tozer wrote, he's written a number of great books. He said, when a man thinks, when a woman thinks of the word God, what comes to their mind is the most important thing about them. It dictates everything, right? Imagine, if you, when you hear the word God, you think of a loving, humble father, then the way that you live your life is gonna be much different than if you think about God and you think he doesn't exist or he's out to get me. It's gonna change who you are. C.S. Lewis responds and he says, I've got a better question for you. And maybe for a lot of us in here, we've never thought about this concept. The Bible says in Psalm 139 in Psalm 19, all throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, that God knows you personally. Here's what you have to get. Sometimes when we hear that, we think God knows us as a mass of people. Right, God knows us as a group. God knows us as humanity. God knows us as, by country. You Americans, you, you, uh, all the Latino population. He knows all of. He knows all of you as big groups of people. That's some of the Bible says. The Bible says you have been fearfully and wonderfully made. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knows every hair on your head. He calls you by name, which means the God of the universe thinks about you. Not y'all. Not the mass of you. What's your name? Lauren. Lauren. God thinks about you. What's your name? Ethan. God thinks about you. What's your name? Colin. Colin. God thinks about Colin. What's your name? Mia, God thinks about Mia. Put your name in there. God thinks about you. And there's a question that I want you to come to your mind and I want you to simplify, I want to simplify it as easy as possible. When God thinks about you, he thinks one of two things, not three, not four, not five. So as you ask yourself this question, what does God think about when he thinks about me? I'll give you the answer, because it's only A or B. In this conversation, there's no Switzerland, there's no neutral party, there's no third direction. There's A or there's B. When you think about God, you might think a thousand different things. When God thinks about you, it's one of two things. The Bible says, you are either, Romans 8, 1, 8, 15, you are an adopted child of God through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross because you've submitted and surrendered your life to him, or you are, Romans 5, 8 through 13, an enemy of God. There's no third direction. Again, like a doctor, I'm here to tell you the truth. God thinks one of two things about you. You are his child or you are his enemy. The picture we have of Jesus is kind of this cool, laid-back, hippie kind of fellow who we think, when we meet him face-to-face someday, we might get to get away with everything that we've done because we're used to convincing and tricking our friends, our teachers, our parents. The Bible says this, do not be deceived, friend. God cannot be mocked. I want to present you with this simple question as we walk out of here. When you think about God, God, what do you think about? The more important question is this. When God thinks about you, when God thinks about Mia, when God thinks about Colin, when God thinks about Ethan, when God thinks about Lauren, what does he think about? And I want you to have an answer to that question. And I want the answer to your question to be beyond what you say. Here's what I mean by that. What you say isn't as important as who you are picture a tree that grows oranges. That is called a orange tree. If that tree hangs a sign on itself and it says lemon tree, then that tree is a orange tree. Do you see what I just did? Liar is another good word. If an orange tree, if you go home and you find an orange tree and you label it lemon, you're wrong because orange trees produce oranges. When you think about the question of what does God think about when he thinks about you, don't think about what you've labeled yourself. Imagine you weren't allowed to talk. Imagine you weren't allowed to give an answer, but someone was able to look at what is important to you, where you spend your time, where you spend your energy, where you spend your resources, where you spend your thought life, what you worry about most, what you're concerned with, what the, the, the trajectory of your life is. If you weren't able to label yourself, but instead the fruit of your life was able to label you, answer this question. What does God think about when he thinks about you? There's only two answers child of God, enemy of God, object of God's love, or object of God's wrath. And this week we want to really dig into what do we do if our answer is pretty clearly, I'm opposed to God, I'm an enemy of God, but that you also feel something wrestling in you saying, I don't want that anymore. That's what this whole conversation is going to be about. Would you pray with me? Jesus, would you give us the bravery and the courage to lean into these conversations? God, this room is is full of students that get it. (laughs) They're adults. They're the future of the world's economy, but they are the present state of the world's thought system. Through this people group, you can do remarkable things. And God, I would just pray that you would encourage them and and move within them to lean into these conversations and to answer what I would think, and I think the Bible says is the most important question any person can ask. What does God think about when he thinks about me? Because that changes everything. As we enter into this conversation of truth and what is true and what is false, we know that even now the crafty serpent is moving to change and to distract, to manipulate would you give us your Holy Spirit to ask these questions in boldness of ourselves that you can come in and make real change? God, we're so sick of labeled Christianity, saying what we want to say or, or acting like as long as I call myself a Christian or have a cross in my Instagram bio, then I'm saved. We want to lean into what does your Bible say about being found in you and what do you think about us? So the pray, amen.